welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Today, my guest is Alex Gladstein of HRF. So he's rejoining me on the show. As many of you know, he's the CSO of HRF, Human Rights Foundation, and he's been writing recently. He's got a cool article out about structural adjustments. So we chat about that and also his experience attending Africa Bitcoin Conference. Swan Bitcoin is the easy way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. And especially as we're going through this bear cycle, if you want to engage in a smash buy or check out your DCA and regular cost averaging into Bitcoin, Swan Bitcoin now has a mobile application. So you can use this to buy sats on the go. It's a really convenient application. You can get it on the Google Play or Apple app stores. And there is also a range of information. So for those of you who want to stay up to date on what's going on with Bitcoin, as well as see awesome content from Swan's blog, as well as the rabbit hole, the canons, there is all kinds of educational material that you can find there in the app. So it's on the app store, search Swan Bitcoin. Now for the builders out there, I know a lot of builders listen to the show. Build on L2 is a community for Bitcoin builders by Blockstream. So if you are in need of ways to connect with other builders, whether that is through events, whether that's through programs to help fast track your success, whether you need to showcase your work or your skills to the community, Build on L2 can help you here. Now, there are two main tracks. There's one related more to Core Lightning and another related to building on Liquid. So if you're interested to sign up, go to the website. It's buildonl2.com. Another important need is the need for connection with other Bitcoiners. For those of you, especially in Europe, BTC Prague is an important one. It's coming up June 8th to 10th in Prague, Czech Republic. It's going to be awesome. There are going to be 10,000 people there. There'll be Bitcoin whales, there'll be business insiders, developers, fresh newbies, Bitcoin miners, you name it. There are awesome connection opportunities, whether you're looking for a job, you're looking for content, you're looking for people to meet, friends to make. There's just an awesome opportunity available with more than 60 world-class speakers and 100 companies. I'm going to be the host for one of the days on the main stage, and I'm really looking forward to it. Also, for those of you who are looking for a holiday, Prague is a fantastic place. It's a beautiful city with awesome beer and affordable prices. So you can go to btcprague.com, use code Levera to get your discounted ticket, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there in Prague. And now onto the show with Alex. Alex, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. So Alex, I know you were, obviously you've been doing some great work recently with your writing, and uh, I also wanted to chat about the Africa Bitcoin Conference. I know you were just there, and you're obviously uh, quite vocal about it. I want to hear a little bit about it. What was your experience there like? Yeah, well, I think that the essay that we're going to talk about when it comes to global economic power structures and the Africa Bitcoin Conference were actually quite related. I was inspired in part to do the research when I was learning about uh, what the IMF and World Bank had done in countries like Ghana. And I think what Farida Naburema and her team accomplished in Accra with hosting the Africa Bitcoin Conference was... um, really monumental in that in that aspect in that it really hit the nail on the head in terms of exposing the fact that uh, the financial system in in Africa and in uh, most of the um, global south is essentially still a colonial framework that's what she said in her opening remarks uh, the lead organizer of the Africa Bitcoin conference is a basically a civil liberties advocate from Togo which is a country that fell under French colonialism for many many years and still is victim of what is known as the French colonial currency the CIFA where Paris and and Europe still sort of control a lot of the financial aspects of the way that people live in in about 15 African countries 
So I was very captivated by her story and how she explained to me once that, uh, like, I, I basically knew her before I realized that there was like a Bitcoin connection or like a monetary freedom connection. We met her through her democracy work and her human rights work in Togo because the country's ruled by a, you know, corrupt dictator. And she's been involved and her family's been involved for generations in fighting against colonialism and, and now against dictatorship. But essentially, she she taught me that after colonization formally ended around 1960, the Togolese people elected a leader who named Silvanus Olympio. And he, one of the first things he wanted to do as president was create like a, a, the country, you know, a currency for the country, you know, to get off of the French colonial system. And uh, I think just sort of days before he was able to get this done, he was actually assassinated by French troops, French trained troops. So I guess for the Togolese people, uh, you know, in this country in, in West Africa, their human rights struggle has always been about monetary freedom. I always thought that was really interesting. So from there, she learned about Bitcoin and has put it forward as kind of an anti-colonial currency. And I think that that's um, really apt and very, very true. It's very, it's an anti-imperial currency. I think that's um, one of the coolest parts about Bitcoin. Um, it provides an escape uh, and as we'll get into, people in the global south have always kind of lived under the thumb of foreign powers. And until recently, they didn't really have a way out. Like if you were living in a country in Latin America or South Asia or Africa, like in the 80s, you know, you were kind of stuck. Like you had the fiat currency that you were born into, which which normally would be devalued uh, either by foreign powers or by your local dictator. Um, and you were largely like kind of kept isolated from financial networks. And it was really at the Africa Bitcoin conference uh, through learning uh, from the speakers there that I kind of started to put all the pieces together in my head and realized that, you know, that one of the reasons why places like Africa are financially isolated and split apart is, is not by sort of destiny or circumstance, it's by design. So actually, you know, when the colonial powers kind of chopped up this part of the world, the banking system was implemented not to connect people, but to actually to make money off uh, providing a service between them, right? So instead of being a link, they were, in, they, they were intermediaries, right? So you have like 41 central banks in Africa. And uh, Jack Mahler's actually spoke about this in his keynote speech down there. And so did Bernard Parra from Bitnop. They talked about how divided Africa was. And again, Frida talked about how the whole system is like a colonial framework, but essentially, I mean, you have 41 plus central banks, none of them, none of them are interoperable. So you have all these people with different fiat currencies, and then you have colonial currencies, and none of them are interoperable. And it's very hard to move money from out the outside world into Africa. And it's very hard to move money from each, Af you know, one African country to another. So even if you have like, uh, let's say, M-Pesa value in Kenyan currency, it's very difficult to move money to uh, Ghanaian CDs or, you know, South African Rand or something like that. Like it's, it's very difficult to move money within Africa. And it's even harder to move it kind of from from without. And one of the facts that I learned, uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, Jack and Bernard both spoke about it in their speech, but I think it was something like 80, like something like, um, you know, 80% of the fees that are taken from moving money within Africa, are, go to go to foreign uh, companies. And that to me is really like the really true sign of the colonial framework still existing, right? So when Africans are trying to move money to each other, you've got like massive rent seeking by by 
essentially, you know, what you could still call, you know, colonialism, like essentially like financial colonialism, right? Like these <laughs> Western companies are siphoning off all the value when like people are just trying to do business with each other or send money to their family. So, so Bitcoin's like a, a reaction to that. And I think that that was, it's very deep and very profound. And the community that gathered there was um, really striking and very impressive. I know a good amount about Bitcoin in Africa, I, th I would say, like more than the average person probably. And I was like, just totally staggered at what I saw and the people I met. I mean, we're talking Bitcoin entrepreneurs and communities in infamous conflict zones and countries that Americans can't even put on a map or even know exist. I mean, I met people from... Uh, Somalia, DR Congo, Cameroon, Somaliland, uh, Libya. I mean, we're talking about, you know, countries that most people would say are the poorest or the most war-torn countries in the world. And there are like thriving Bitcoin communities in these places. So I think it's really neat, I guess, to summarize that Bitcoin is being used not, not just more broadly by people in countries that have been screwed over by the IMF and World Bank historically, that's kind of where the per capita usage is highest in many in many cases. If you're you know actually looking at like the numbers and you look at like countries like uh, Argentina or Nigeria or the Philippines or uh, Indonesia or Turkey or or even Ukraine, like you know basically countries where like foreign powers have come in and messed around, these are places where where Bitcoin is really is really providing a lot of value, and then even more so like places that are currently being devastated the value proposition of Bitcoin really, really shines through. So I was like totally staggered by, by what I saw there, yeah. deeply inspired. And um, yeah, and I've been reflecting a lot about capitalism also uh, as the second part of this, which is like, you know, I think that um, I really like Alan Farrington's piece about this is not capitalism. And I'm sure most people listening would agree that like the system we live in is definitely not capitalism because it's a, uh, it's a post 71 fiat or whatever you want to call it. Right. It, it's centrally yeah. planned. I mean, the central banking, the control of the credit, but, but at the same time, I think we need to sympathize or at least I'm trying to sympathize with the fact sure, that, yeah. okay, so what are the Marxists criticizing then? You know, so the Marxists are criticizing global capitalism we need to have a name for it, right? So what they're calling capitalism, meaning these big multinational companies that come into these poor countries and like basically exploit people, like I think it's okay, on the one hand, fine, we could say that's not capitalism. But what is it? We need to have a word for it, right? So I think people might use the term crony capitalism, but fair. I understand, let's say a Marxist may not uh, like that or may not uh, like that characterization. And it's not just a Marxist. It's just like the people of the third world, right? Like they, they've, yeah. they've seen this movie before. They've lived decades and decades where foreign corporations come in on favorable terms and they get, they extract value from these countries and they leave. And, you know, that is the legacy of, of what is known as capitalism more broadly to the mainstream, right? Yeah, and sure. I think that's just something interesting to reflect on. And whatever that is, um, and, and I, it, you know, it's fun to play with because we could say, well, it's not really capitalism, but then we're kind of doing the no true Scotsman thing where it's like the communists say, well, you know, communism's never been tried either. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm sympathetic to that, but I think for me, where I draw the line is ultimately, do you have private property rights, right? Do you actually have genuine totally private property agree. rights or are, let's say, is there a government or a state somewhere intervening and forcefully 
you know, impeding on that. And I think that's where you're getting at with the, with with your article, of course, the whole structural adjustment idea. Right. So that people in these poor countries don't actually have property rights, right? Like, or in this, or they don't have the same rights yeah. as foreign corporations, right? And I I, I want to be empathetic to that, and um, that's what I've reflected a lot on. And what's interesting is whatever you want to call the system we have today, the dominant American led, you know, Western bank led system that's like implemented by the IMF and World Bank and, you know, where, where, you know, the most prominent pieces are giant companies like Coca-Cola, Walmart, etc. Whatever this thing is, you know, one of the things it does is exploit and its, its incentive system is structured to gear towards monopolies. Like it basically creates monopolies and then those monopolies do rent seeking and rent extraction and exploitation and i you know that's what you know the left is criticizing is that and what i what i think is really interesting is bitcoiners are also criticizing that from a different perspective and i think that's that's when you have two very different groups of people criticizing the same thing it usually means they're correct right <laughs> <laughs> i guess is what i want to say so in a, a lot of what i with my what i've been working on in the last few months doing the research for the piece on the imf and the world bank you know, what was so interesting is that you had libertarians and Marxists agreeing that these institutions were awful. And I, I think that's that's something you're going to see as well as as we start to talk more about monetary policy in the third world, in the developing world, is you're going to have people who are anti-imperial or anti-colonial or like more traditionally on the left, um, maybe coming over to Bitcoin because they, they um, see it as kind of like a third way, like a, just in general, like just to finish, like what I was most inspiring, what I saw there in Accra was that like, maybe we could have a different incentive mechanism, right? So maybe you could have instead of a system where it's built to extract value as people transact with each other, maybe we could have a cooperative open system where what ends up happening is entrepreneurship maybe drives down prices for people and creates more value. That would be a different system. And, and that was sort of when you think about what Strike's doing with BitNob and you, you start to observe how they interact with this open global 24-7 liquid protocol. I think you could start to actually see that happening. And I think that would be really exciting. So uh, I think what, I'm, what you're seeing maybe being born at the Africa Bitcoin conference are conversations and, and, and companies and theories and concepts that are, um, I think what we've all been waiting for, for like many decades is a, some, some, some sort of third way between Marxism and crony capitalism. And I think that that's kind of the big thing I'm, I've been reflecting on. Yeah. And so, I mean, bringing it then to your actual article, which is about this concept of, let's call it structural adjustment, or that's the term you have. Mm -hmm. And basically, as I, as I read it, essentially, is that some of these kind of intergovernmental or international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF have basically, in a way, they've parasitically taken controls in certain ways, or they, they mm -hmm. essentially play this game of, oh, we'll give you a loan, but here are the strings attached. And that ends up really harming the people in those countries that they are purportedly or supposedly trying to help, right? Um, so do you want to maybe set a bit of the scene there? Like, what are these organizations? Like, what what are they doing? What are they What are they meant to be doing, at least? Yeah, well, I think there's um, a lot to be said for, for just adding some context with traditional colonialism and then the demise of colonialism and then, you know, post-1960, you didn't have it anymore. And I think if you don't look at that lens you miss what the World Bank and IMF like essentially ended up doing um, if you're not looking at the legacy of colonialism. And I think that too few people actually look at colonialism care 
carefully enough and they, they don't allow it to kind of penetrate their thinking enough to the point where, as I was doing a lot of the research over the last few months for this, I found some pretty compelling theories by people from the global South, like who were basically saying like, for example, like look at the Great Depression, like, and we, we, we have the traditional kind of Austrian Keynesian debate over why did we, why did the Great Depression in the West happen, right? Was it because we left the gold standard or didn't leave it fast enough or whatever, right? So this is the debate, right? Um, there are a bunch of Indian academics who uh, did a kind of a, you know, data-based analysis and they were like, well, wait a second. What if part of it was that like this colonial drain that these Western powers had feasted on for, for centuries started to slow down and, 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 and wane? Like, wouldn't that also cause uh, economic problems in the West? Like, wouldn't that also cause a recessionary and, and, uh, and volatile issues? And so they put forward this thesis in this book called Capital and Imperialism. And I certainly don't agree with the authors on that many things, but I thought that this was kind of interesting. And it helped me start to, start to understand like what would later happen with the IMF World Bank in that like the whole point of colonialism in the first place was essentially that foreign powers would go into a peripheral, what they would call the peripheral place, right? And they would extract value either through labor, slavery or, or cheap labor, or, or they would just take stuff. And then they would like manufacture that stuff at home with industry. And then they would sell the finished goods back to these like peripheral places. And that would crowd out uh, any sort of local manufacture. So that was like the traditional sort of um, uh, mechanism of colonialism. And then the outcome, or, or I guess the point of it all, was essentially that in the West, we faced a crisis of inflation. And we always have had a crisis of inflation. And to keep inflation reasonable and to keep living standards good, like let's say in the West, required an external output, right? So what colonialism allowed were European uh, empires to to like basically subsidize living standards at home by like having an input of really cheap goods and, and, and labor from abroad. And this is sort of, again, like the colonial system and and really, it was about wage deflation. Like you, you, you would you would get like wage deflation in the periphery, uh, where over time people are working like more and more hours for the same thousand calories of rice. That's kind of what I'm really talking about here. That is how you would you would subsidize the way of life in the what they would call the core countries. So so that was like a huge benefit to let's say Germany, France, the United Kingdom, even the United States, Japan, uh, all of these imperial powers. For, for centuries, that this is really what helped us advance. And look, I'm a human rights advocate, and I focus on individual freedoms and liberties. And clearly, I think one of the reasons why Western civilization has been so prosperous and effective are, are because of free speech and property rights and all the things that I fight for. But in doing this research, it's really made me reflect and realize that like, well, yes, it's a lot of that, 100%. But it's also because we basically stole stuff from poor countries for a long time. Like, and I, I think that if we don't acknowledge that, we're kind of missing a piece of history. So that's really what I've been reflecting on a lot. Like when you're in a beautiful city like London or New York City or Tokyo, like, yes, you're looking at the fruits of liberty and freedom, but you're also looking at the fruits of exploitation of, of poor countries far away. Like that, that, that is absolutely part of what you're looking at when you're looking at this gorgeous architecture and art and culture and all these things. So that's like a deep reflection I had. And I think what, 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 what you realize then is when you're looking at the history of the, of the Bretton Woods system, Bretton Woods was initially created, the institutions inside Bretton Woods, like the IMF and World Bank, were initially sort of created to like rebuild Europe and Japan, right, after World War II. 
uh, with the World Bank being the development bank, which would come in and pay for infrastructure that private capital like you know wasn't incentivized to fund, and with the IMF being the lender of last resort, that would that would come in and like quote unquote like bail out countries that face an import export crisis, where their imports were, were just bigger you know more than their exports for some time, and they faced a, a cap you know an account deficit. So so these two institutions were initially designed to just sort of help pull these core countries out of the rubble after Second World War. And of course, on America's terms, right? They were designed to help America like become the, the center of everything, as, as we know. I mean, the dollar system, right? But as colonialism sort of really collapsed and faded away, and we use 1960 as kind of the formal end of it, that's really helpful to think about because by 1960, Europe, Japan, America, you know, were really sort of back on their feet as industrial powers. And, and we're like, really dominant again in many ways. And their their societies had really been, let's say, repaired uh, from the destruction that they had, you know, essentially inflicted on each other. And at that point, the World Bank and IMF conveniently sort of, I guess, they, they sort of, they, that's when they start to shift their attention to the third world or developing world, whatever we want to call it. And I think what ends up happening, and, and I don't, I'm, I don't think there was like a meeting where like three guys like figured it out. I think this was sort of something that was, I don't know whether you want to call it path dependent or structural or whatever, but what ends up happening is that the IMF and World Bank start to replace what traditional colonialism did through their policies. So they, they started to replace what was done once with warships and guns, except the new weapon was with debt, right? So that, that was the idea. So again, traditionally you had foreign powers coming in and just literally stealing and extracting minerals and timber and goods and enslaving people. So what the IMF and World Bank did um, is they would do this in, in a disguised way. Like they would do it in the name of development. <laughs> they would do it in the name of uh, like improving the quality of life for for people um, uh, in in these countries. And that's that's really um, I think the the most twisted uh, part about the whole thing. Um, is that, you know, you look at these photos of the World Bank IMF headquarters in, in, in DC, and there's like a giant sign that says end poverty on it. But in reality, they're, they're kind of doing the opposite. They're really exploiting people and, and impoverishing them. And again, like, they're extracting value and, and, and through what, what I'll describe, and I'll explain as structural adjustment policies, they're doing wage deflation, right? They're doing what traditional colonialism would end up inflicting on these like poorer parts of the world, you sort of get the same effect. You get you get a subsidized way of life in the core countries, meaning the IMF creditors, the the five countries that traditionally have been the creditors to the IMF, which are the US, the G5, the US, Germany, Japan, France, and, and England, they're getting this benefit to their societies and to their allies by reducing the quality of life and reducing consumption and reducing industry and productivity in the poor countries. So unfortunately, that's the reality is that the world is a little bit of a zero sum game and 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 these systems have exploited and so many and that's why I think we need to just have an honest conversation about what they are and what their impact has been and hopefully we can get rid of them yeah i mean they've been so awful yeah of course i mean i mean certainly uh if the message is let's abolish uh the imf and the world bank i'm 100 on board yeah. um but yeah. uh let me let me pose one question to you that yeah. might be interesting right so sure if you look at i'm sure you're probably familiar with something like ourworldindata.org right and if you look on the stats there you'll see something like oh look how many hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty over the last 30 or 40 years. And so mm -hmm. uh, we could, like someone could look at, at us and say, well, hang on, 
is it that you know all these people have been raised out of poverty like and that's factually true except for maybe mm-hmm. these last two years of lockdown and so on but aside from you know if we looked at the numbers in 2019 we would have seen look at all these people coming out of poverty so is the argument we're making here more like more people would have been raised out of poverty like they would be even richer than they are today is that the way to frame it yeah i think there's there's two really big factors there so one is general technology innovation which has resulted in massive increases in life expectancy and in general productivity now that this would like like 100 years ago life expectancy in many countries was like 20 years old. Okay. So you've had scientific medical innovations that have allowed people to just, you know, live longer. And you have had productivity innovations, which are technical in nature, which have allowed people to become better farmers. Okay. And to, and to sustain and to, to get more calories out of a certain amount of land. Right. So these are, uh, the, these are happening. And secondly, you have China. Okay. So usually when you look at the, our world and data stuff, What's really important is to remove China from the data set, actually, because China accounts for such a huge percentage of like what you see is like countries coming out of poverty or the poverty rate reducing. Right. And China has its uh, is a completely separate topic. Um, and we could go on and on about this. But, you know, China came out of a super closed communist system where you yeah. basically had hyper central planning leading to people who didn't know how to farm being forced to farm and starving, et cetera, et cetera, and vice versa. Um, cultural revolution stuff, you know, and then you had the like sort of slow introduction of of personal freedoms and financial freedoms over time, which led to enormous gains in in productivity and in income and stuff like that. I think that's a very different paradigm than what you saw across the the like what would really be called the third world, where you know maybe between 1960 and 1990, you saw massive gains in China. Uh, you you didn't see that in in Latin America and in, in Africa and in parts of South Asia. Uh, in fact, you saw in some cases a, a decline in countries that were structurally adjusted. You saw actual contractions of GDP despite population going up. You had the total amount of value created in real terms by these countries going down, which is really crazy. So. I think that's really important to look at and to point out. But in general, yes, what we're saying here, or at least what I'm, my thesis would be, is that the 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 like third world or the developing countries would be much 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 richer were it not for these IMF and World Bank policies. Um, now, would they be as as rich as England or America? No, of course not. But they'd be a lot richer than they are now. Right. Yeah. And that's as I get into in the article, not just because of what the IMF and World Bank do, but also because of the general policies of these nations. Like, you know, we these nations pride themselves as capitalist nations that that focus on free markets, right, and free trade. And that's like kind of how they project themselves to the world as opposed to the Soviet Union, right, or as opposed to the CCP. Um, and there's a lot of truth in that, of course. Of course, there's a lot of truth in that. Of course, there is a lot of truth in saying that America is a capitalist nation. Of course. I mean, I'm not going to argue that. I know we could we could nitpick with that for sure. But when we compare America to the Soviet Union, like, come on, right? So um, we would say it's a capitalist power, right? That being said, since since World War II, what these nations did is they used centralized planning um, and what you would basically call socialized sort of measures to, to protect their economies. Okay, so what I'm talking about here are things like uh, tariffs uh, and subsidies. So countries like America have subsidized agriculture and have put tariffs against the import of uh, agricultural goods from 
places like Africa. So what this has done is essentially it's like it's like crippled the ability of other countries um, to actually be prosperous and to and to have like a fair, fair, free and fair sort of open trading ground. So you have countries like the United States, you know, paying an enormous amount of money to keep peanut farmers profitable, like literally just paying them to do this. Um, at, and that, that makes it really, really difficult for poor countries to grow, to grow peanuts in a profitable way and leads to like horrendous labor exploitation, et cetera. Now this is, this is all done in the name of food security. So for the United States and Europe, everything's been about food security. So, um, and that's becoming really clear now, like post Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're starting to see why that's important, right? We're starting to see these two concepts, which weren't really that popular to talk about, like even in the Bitcoin circles, like previous to this year, really, to be honest, people didn't really talk about energy sovereignty or food security that much. But these two things have really become, it's very much, you know, now they're part of our discourse. And now it's sort of fit in the hindsight, obvious that these two things are so critical. Um, but with, but, but, you know, food security and energy sovereignty are really what it's all about. I use a quote in my piece by uh, a friend of mine. I want to read it because I thought it's a, uh, really a, a pithy it's by a friend of mine named Murtaza Hussein it's a journalist and he says if you turned off the electricity for a few months in any developed western society 500 years of supposed philosophical progress about human rights and individualism would quickly evaporate like they never happened and <laughs> yeah. you know it's a little bit of an exaggeration but it the point stands that like it, it it's really about food security and energy sovereignty like and if you don't have these things Oh, yeah. I mean, you see riots. I mean, even, totally. even for me, as, as someone born in Sri Lanka, right, just recently, right, there was crazy protesting and rioting. And a big part of that was the country, the island was not getting fuel. People couldn't drive. Totally. So, you know, it's... So the, the point is that these supposedly capitalist nations had used centrally planned and enforced by violence, actually, but but centrally planned structures to sort of artificially increase their own food security and energy sovereignty at the expense of others, right? That's what you've had. So it's a, it's a whole system of double standards. So, you know, we, meaning like, like America, Britain, France, we, we subsidize our societies, um, meaning we pay farmers and we protect them and we protect our steel industries and we give free healthcare to people, quote unquote, free healthcare and all this stuff and free, ch cheaper energy and, this has all been like, these have been like key reasons why like standards of living have been so high in, in Western countries for so long. And this is being done over here. But on the other hand, we go to these poor countries, like Sri Lanka is a great example. So like in the 60s, Sri Lanka gave like some free rice to its people, like some certain amount of basic free rice. So you could compare that to like minimum wage in America or something like that, right? Um, what's ironic though, is that like the British who give all kinds of free stuff to their people and who, who give who massively protect their industries at home, they would go to a country like Sri Lanka and say, "Oh, you guys have a balance of payments crisis. Oh no! So like you're going, you're gonna, you're gonna go bankrupt. Okay, well we'll we'll give you this loan, but only if you stop giving free rice to your people, right? That that was like the idea. And um, of course, like giving free rice is probably a bad economic idea. Uh, but the point is, when you when you have people who are used to having free rice, and then all of a sudden it's not free anymore." Well, a lot of people are going to starve, right? So, you know, that that's kind of the, the callousness that, that these policies were imposed on by the World Bank and IMF over the years. And it's really important to understand that, like, the double standard piece of it. Like, all of the things, and, and we can now get into structural adjustment and what it is, but, like, all the things that were asked of these poor countries when they would have to structurally adjust in order to get a loan, 
those 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 things were never asked of the empires. They were never asked of America or Britain or Germany or Japan, more or less. And it, what's crazy is America is the biggest debt empire of all. And I mean, in my previous writing and work, I've written about the fact that America is the biggest debtor nation. Uh, it's it's literally the world runs on American debt. But we've never had to structurally adjust, right? We we've, ne- we've never had to structurally adjust. And you know, I just think those double standards are are really. A, at the heart of why the world is so unequal in many ways. Yeah. But anyway, so structural adjustment is the title of the article. And what it really meant is that from inception, the IMF, uh, and then later after 1980, especially the World Bank would do this as well. But like they would basically make a loan. And again, these are loans. These are not gifts. So these loans are profit making for the IMF or the World Bank. Uh, They make money. Uh, largely through the global Cantillon effect. We often talk about the Cantillon effect like in our own societies in Bitcoin, like whether it's in the United States or Australia or whatever. We talk about how Wall Street benefits from being close to the source of uh, you know, yeah. fiat creation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's also a global Cantillon effect, right? So um, Western capital banks, they can get cheaper loans. Uh, they can get cheaper money than uh, Ghana, let's say, yeah. or, or Sri Lanka, much cheaper. So what the World Bank or IMF would do is they would make money off that spread. So they would like sort of borrow from creditors at back in the day, let's say five, 6%, and, they, and then they would loan it out to poor countries at eight, nine, 10%, whatever. So not only are they like making money in that sense, um, and you know, in general, like we have to, people forget in development economics, but when loans are made, the borrower pays back more than the, what they borrowed to the, to the creditor. Uh, I mean, to the, to the tune of like, for example, like, let's say a country borrows a billion dollars, like when all said and done, they probably have paid back a billion and a half at the end of the day, something right. like that. The interest keeps compounding and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And some of these loans get, uh, there's something called the Paris club, which is an institution where like debt would get kind of rescheduled and, and rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled. So sometimes these loans and IMF loans were meant to be sort of relatively short-term couple year loans. World bank loans were longer, but a lot of these loans would just get rescheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled. So the point is not only were the IMF and World Bank kind of benefiting and the creditors of the IMF and World Bank benefiting by quote unquote development, like the like the idea that the very word aid and assistance and development, I mean, it sounds like we're trying to be helping these poor countries, but like the basic fact is we're making money off them, right? Like through the loans. So you have that piece. And then even beyond that, beyond the fact that we're making money off them, they would have to structurally adjust. So what 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 that would mean is that they would need to follow uh, a rule like a, like a bunch of like essentially like rules or or like a playbook that that the IMF would 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 impose, and these would include things like currency devaluation, uh, shrinking domestic bank credit. Um, they would include favorable rules for foreign companies. They would include raising taxes. They would include getting rid of any subsidies on food or energy. They would in, they would include um, kind of uh, getting rid of any sort of like wage wage subsidy and also like putting a, a actually a ceiling on wages. They would include selling off state owned enterprises, etc. So probably like a mix of policies that Bitcoiners would would be aghast at, and others where they'd probably be like, "Oh, that sounds like a good idea." Right. But yeah. in any event, like like a sort of a, a mixed bag. But this is what you'd really be describing as like quote-unquote liberalization right so countries like sri lanka or ghana you know they would not only they would take the loan and then the taxpayers there would be on the hook for 
PNI, right, over time. But they'd also have to do all these things, which would lead to short-term like impoverishment and reduction in quality of life for the population. And you could argue, well, maybe, you know, 20, 30 years later, you'd see upside. But like in the immediate, in the immediate sense, like five to 10 year period of time, like you're, you're going to have a rough time when you have what these are essentially austerity measures, right? And I think what was interesting is when you zoom out and look at these structural adjustment policies that were imposed across uh, the third world for decades and decades is that what they really were doing is they were forcing countries to reduce consumption and industry in favor of export. So like the productive energy of the country would be diverted from feeding itself and from developing and from creating like unique industries. And it would be diverted towards making stuff for us. So, so making stuff for the, the rich West or whatever, or the gotcha. global North or whatever you want to and, say. And this is what you're referring to the cash crops instead of yeah. food crops as one example in the article. Yeah. There's a, there's a clip going around Bitcoin Twitter recently, a guy named Michael Hudson, who, who I've written about in the past, uh, and he's in the clip explaining why like why African debt is different from American debt. And he's talking about food policy and he's talking about how like, you know, in a country like Ghana, you know, it's different from the US. Like the US can is a prints the reserve currency. So we can just file paperwork and buy oil or food or whatever we need if we had to. And we tend to try and make sure we don't have to do that. Like, but but like we can, right? Ghana can't do that. So the Ghanaian CD is not convertible on world markets. So Ghana can't just like print a bunch of money, uh, neither can Sri Lanka, et cetera. They, they can't just like, do, you know, press the fiat button, money printer, go burr and go buy stuff. No, if they want tractors or fertilizer or oil or heavy machinery or anything like that, or, or in many cases, wheat, um, they actually have to like uh, provide a service to the outside world and then, and the, or, you know, export things, goods, minerals, uh, timber, whatever, and then with the and then they earn foreign hard currency, and then with those receipts, they then then they can go and buy the wheat or the or the tractor or whatever. So, what ends up happening for a lot of these poor countries is that like they're first of all they're paying like forty to fifty percent in some cases of their income of their foreign hard currency income to pay back the debt that they've incurred over the years. This is dollar denominated debt to the World Bank and IMF, right? Um, so, like a huge percentage of their producti- productivity as a nation. Is is going to pay off debt and interest, and then with whatever's left over, you know, you would often have the the corrupt rule. You know, these countries were usually ruled by dictators or unaccountable rulers. Like, you know, they would take off another twenty, thirty percent for, for you know their cronies, their palaces, their wine collection, their car- cars, their palaces in France, whatever. And like, what would be left over for the population was like really, really small. So you you would not only have like essentially the engineering of these economies away from growing substance food, whether it be beef or rice or whatever, you'd not only have it be diverted so that those farmers were now growing things, inedible things, typically like coffee or cocoa or cotton or rubber or palm oil or whatever, not only were they like growing things they couldn't eat, but they weren't, they were only seeing like a tiny fraction of the profits. And so what ends up happening like over time is that you have these poor countries where people were very poor in the past, but they could feed themselves. Okay. And with, you know, people call it globalization. Like one of the big effects as I've been describing is that you now have poor countries where people are still very poor, but they can't feed themselves. They have to go buy stuff in the, in the, in the market from abroad. And I think one fact is so staggering that it just, 
it, it kind of sums this up is that today Africa imports 85% of its food. And that to me is just like so awful and obviously so anti-free market. Like Africa should be producing food for the world. It's like a breadbasket, right? So if we lived in this like neat little free market utopia, that's what would be happening. Like Africa has a comparative advantage in this area and they would be providing food for the world and they certainly wouldn't need to import any food for themselves. But because of the legacy of colonialism and, and now of the World Bank and IMF, a handful of countries that, that were dominant structured the world so that African countries were forced to buy food from them and instead divert their agricultural uh, energies towards making other stuff that we wanted. And it's, it's just sort of a grim, a grim situation, if that makes sense. Back to the show in a moment. Coinkite.com are making Bitcoin hardware. So for many Bitcoiners, there's a time in your journey when you start out with a phone wallet, but over time, it's time to use hardware. Coldcard is the leading hardware wallet or hardware signing device, in my opinion. It, it is so reliable. It's really secure. It has a range of features that you can use to help secure your coins, whether you're using it as part of a single signature setup, whether you're using multi-signature, whether you are using features like BIP85 and child seeds, meaning you just have one master seed and generate some child seeds to use for other wallets. Coldcard supports all of these things and you can get it over at coinkite.com. Make sure you use the code Levera to get a discount on your Coldcard. So when we send our Bitcoin transactions, I like to check my fee on mempool.space. Mempool.space is the leading Bitcoin blockchain explorer. It shows Bitcoin as a fully-fledged multi-layer ecosystem. Now, mempool.space is really intelligent with how they show you the estimated fee. So if you are looking for your transaction to get confirmed really quickly, you can use the high fee setting. And if you are more patient, if you have a lower time preference, you can use the low or medium settings there. And so that's a really cool tool. It is integrated in some different wallets. And of course, you can self-host your own instance of mempool.space. It's free and open source software. Now, if you're with an enterprise, mempool.space offers custom features such as a custom mempool instance with your company's branding. You can get increased API limits and access to the team for feature requests. Go to mempool.space slash enterprise for that. And finally, Unchained Capital are industry leaders in the multi-signature and guided pathway solutions for customers out there. So for those of you who want to make sure you are removing single points of failure, you are not just trusting the exchange, you are not just trusting a custodian, you are holding your own private keys. And so with multi-sig, you can hold two keys in different locations and Unchained can hold the third key. They can help you set this up. They've got a concierge onboarding program. And now it also comes with an inheritance protocol because most of us have heirs or family that we want to pass Bitcoin down to. So this inheritance package and protocol is going to help you do that. It has step-by-step -step checklists. It has letters for the executor or trustee and a tamper-proof bag and some additional content there. So go and sign up. It's over at unchanged.com slash concierge. Use code Levera for a discount. Back to the show. It's so unjust. And because one way to think of it as well is that there's a big problem of debt and people taking on too much debt. And really what's going on here is it's not just individuals in those countries, it's some dictator or some government and they've gone on and taken on all this debt and now all these people are stuck with the bag. They're stuck paying it off. And in your article as well, you mentioned this concept of odious debt. So yeah. do you mind explaining a bit about that concept and the injustice of it? Sure. Well, context is is what we what is the world's largest Ponzi scheme. And I'm always looking at TV and people are talking about FTX and Oh, the world. No, this is not the world's largest Ponzi scheme. The world's largest Ponzi scheme is not was not the dot com bubble. It was not the subprime bubble. It was not Madoff or FTX. It was not even the stimulus bubble. 
it's a sovereign debt bubble. And um, this is a this bubbles trillions and trillions of dollars. And what ends up happening is that a lot of the sovereign debt is is incurred by countries that are ruled by either dictators, autocrats, or unaccountable rulers, or in the past, even colonialists, right? So the concept of odious debt dates back to the end of the 19th century from the Spanish-American War when American policymakers' courts basically said that um, once the Spanish were defeated, the Cuban people didn't owe them, didn't owe the debts that the Spanish had incurred because the Spanish were subject, subjugating the Cubans. So that made sense, right? So they called that odious debt and that was sort of like written off. The thing is the IMF and World Bank have never followed that sort of legal precedent, right? So even though you had literal colonialists like the Portuguese and the British, I mean, they were taking, they, they were borrowing money in places like Rhodesia or Mozambique or whatever. And then like, even after they left, those nations were still saddled with that debt, the Dutch in, the, in Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera. And then later it was dictators, right? So whether it was Suharto in Indonesia or Marcos in the Philippines or Portillo in Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these dictators would borrow billions of dollars, Mobutu and Zaire, a good example. And like they would get overthrown or they would leave power and the people of the country still had to pay the debt back, which to me is like crazy. So, so much of the massive sovereign debt bubble in the world today is basically what we would call odious debt. And um, I don't know how that ends up being wound down in the future. You know, I think that we start to see that happen as we transition more towards a Bitcoin standard, maybe in the future. But like the point is that that so much of what's owed today was was borrowed what we would you know in a way illegally essentially, and that has led to the you know maldevelopment of so many countries and populations. Like the fact that, like as an example, I cite, cite in my essay. I think when Marcos was tossed out of the Philippines in eighty uh, uh, six, for the following few years after that, like the Philippine the Filipino people were like paying forty to something like forty percent of their um, revenue as a nation was going was being directed towards debt service on that. So you can think about how how crippling that is to a country that's trying to grow and that that is growing in terms of humans like is it like that they're you know in terms of birth rate that the country's actually growing but a huge percentage of its of its lifeblood of its of its income is being directed towards paying interest and <laughs> and debt back on stuff borrowed by some dictator who was totally not elected. Yeah. Um so this is this is the issue of odious debt, and um, if you just look at the external debt of poor countries since the, since seventy since seventy one, really, you know, the WTF happened in seventy one dot com, but really since the late sixties, early seventies, it's astonishing. I mean, again, these countries are poor, but they didn't have a whole lot of debt, and then today their debt is so astounding. Like I looked at this one country, Bangladesh, like which had a couple hundred million dollars in foreign debt in the early seventies, and today it has a hundred billion dollars foreign debt so yeah so the imf just... and world bank like the, the the mechanism was like the bailout right it was like the moral hazard that we often talk about that that satoshi was actually criticizing when they actually created bitcoin right was so you see that on the global level right so what's happening is that the imf and world bank make the impossible possible like they make it possible for these poor countries to borrow so much that they could never ever pay back and that that's because what's happening at the heart of the system is that these dictators would in the 70s and 80s and 90s they would uh they would essentially uh borrow this money and then the world bank or the imf would say hey you know it's time to pay <laughs> mabutu would say i don't ha i don't have the money i'm sorry and instead of taking like basically instead of writing down that uh loan instead of like that country going bankrupt or whatever because that would result on 
that would result in the bank or the funds creditors having to like reduce their balance sheet, right? Um, that would result in an asset on their balance sheet, right? Because that loan's an asset on their balance sheet, right? Getting written down, yeah. Instead of taking the zero on that, they would say, no, just give them another loan, right? Yeah. So they keep because, the cycle going. Exactly. Because it's a fiat system. This is not possible in a Bitcoin standard. But because it's a fiat standard system, they could continue to just do this over and over and over again. So because like the IMF and World Bank are essentially dollar creatures, the dollar system was able to continue to just bail out these countries. And a lot of that was like Cold War politics, right? At the beginning, right? Like Mobutu, we like, you know, the US needed him to like fight the uh, communist uh, uprisings in Central Africa or whatever, which, you know, it is what it is. So, but we would just continue to bail him out over and over and over again. So there was no economic sense here. There was just enormous amount of moral hazards. So you had all these dictators around the world who would just come back to the IMF or World Bank and say, hey, all that money we borrowed to like, you know, fix our crisis or build this dam, like we don't have it. So they would just get another loan. And this was not done in a free market sense. This was not done with any sort of economic uh, wisdom in mind. This was a pure political decision. It was a fiat decision. So this is why you have this absolute explosion of, of foreign debt in, in poor countries. And really they're stuck. It's called the debt trap because they're stuck. I mean, there's nothing they can do. I mean, you talk to people who live in these countries and you know, it's 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 tough to it's tough to tell them to their face you shouldn't take this loan, right? Because like the loan, in an immediate sense, gives capital to the country, which might be starving, right? Now, of course, we all know that again, you have to pay back more than you're given, and it, it puts you further into debt bondage, etc. But for people who are starving today, it's very difficult for them to say no to yeah. the money, right? So it's kind of like I I, I use the parable or the metaphor of the drug dealer like the imf and world bank are drug dealers debt is the drug and these dictators and unaccountable rulers in the developing world are addicts and you know nobody wants to go to rehab like there's no like there's yeah. no incentive for that there's no therapist being like hey maybe you should like not take that loan maybe you should like figure out a different way there's no one saying that today so so there's no one going to rehab and you just have people getting deeper and deeper into debt and eventually you die. And that's what ended up happening. So like the conclusion, essentially the sad part, like the human toll here is that again, you had countries that due to structural adjustment and due to just borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, you know, over decades, their uh, GDP or GDP per capita was, was decreasing in real terms, even though their population was growing. Um, and there's there's some studies I, I I show, but in general you can think of like a country you know a country like Mexico was where one study was done, where with every two percent reduction in, in in GDP per capita you'd have like a one percent uh, increase in mortality rate. Okay, so for example, like okay, so that would mean a two percent contraction right of GDP per GDP per capita in a hundred million person country like Mexico would mean would mean a million people die, right? So in a lot of these countries around the world, you had a 15, 20, 30% contraction of GDP over time. So we're, we're talking tens of millions of people were killed by these policies, um, which is just really crazy. And no one's ever done an accounting of it. And we just will never know. Yeah. And here's the thing, none of these World Bank or IMF officials will ever go to prison. Like there, there's not going to be certainly not like they're, you know, they're, they're partying right now, you know, they're, they're living in their wonderful estates in Virginia or wherever. And um, they're getting fetid uh, at dinners and stuff. And I just think it's so grotesque. I don't know. Yeah, of course. And it, there is some real structural 
issues that come up in the different countries. And, you know, I, even when I talk to people in Sri Lanka, they, you know, with the recent crisis there, they'd be like, they'd sort of be mentioning, oh, look, I heard there's another IMF loan coming. And as, as if like it's going to save them, right? Right. Yeah. And so it's in the short term. Exactly. And so yeah. it's, it's quite real when you're, when you're on the ground in, in these countries and it's, it's quite confronting, obviously. Yeah. We should also very briefly mention China. What ended up, and I think this chapter is sort of closing, but what you had here also was like China as this rising power. China looking at what the world, the US did with the World Bank and IMF and being like, oh my God, we should do that too. And like between like, like basically 2007 and maybe 2021, uh, China through the Belt and Road had a similar kind of similar more to the World Bank, but they had essentially a development bank through like through all kinds of proxies. But essentially, if you took it as a whole, I think by 20, 2018, 2019, they may have even been given more money out per, per, per year than the World Bank at a particular time. But here's the thing China doesn't have the reserve currency. So they would be giving these loans out and like, and they don't have any like structural adjustment conditions. They just like give the loans out. So a lot of countries would flock to China. And then if the, and then when the countries would go bankrupt, like Sri Lanka is right now, like China's like Sri Lanka owns, owes a bunch of money to China right now. Right. Like China can't just like print a bunch of reserve currency to bail out Sri Lanka again. Like it doesn't have the ability to print dollars. So what it, what it can do is it can seize um, a national Assets. industry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know what? Like, Here's the thing. Does China really want the like Sri Lankan telecom? Like, is that so <laughs> in, in, I'm serious. Like what, what's ended up happening across Africa and a lot of the, the world is like, you've got China who's like, okay, so we could come in and like take this state enterprise, but like, do we really want this? Like we have to like enforce yeah. it and hire security guards and like deal with it. And like, what's happening is they're actually retreating from a lot of these places uh, right now uh, as they have their own currency crisis and they're about to have this real estate collapse and all these things. So like, you know, and I'm, I, China's even worse in, in my view than the IMF World Bank in many ways, because look, this is a country committing active genocide, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is that they weren't, they could never do what the IMF World Bank did over time because they don't mint the reserve currency. Um, but it is worth mentioning like, like that they tried to copy the system and and certainly that I I think you know their loans are they ended up backing all kinds of dictators as well so um, certainly certainly not any better uh, and in many ways worse yeah um, but that that may be but, winding down and and in the meantime the IMF and World Bank are bigger than ever I mean dude like the IMF is now a trillion dollar institution and the World Bank's got two hundred fifty three hundred plus billion dollars of loans out there. And a lot of people like think that these things are no longer relevant and that all we had all this debate in the 80s and 90s about these institutions and that, well, they're not that relevant anymore. I mean, they continue to be the most important global financial institutions. Yeah, it's a shame. And I think what happens is the countries get stuck in this debt trap and then they just don't have a way out. And what it nope. takes is to really go independent from that. And I think mm -hmm. you also mentioned this in the article as well, but there's resistance even inside the country because- some people inside the country are benefiting from that system and others are very much not or others d don't understand the problem um, or they, you know, it's like, or as you said, like they don't want to go to rehab, right? Because it's, yep. it's going to be a lot of short-term pain, even for that long-term gain. And so how do you see a way out of this? Yeah. Well, I did the piece and I, I tried to reflect all on this in many ways, just, 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 just to get the info out there. Like I didn't know these things, or at least I only knew a small, small amount of them before doing all this research and, you know, unearthing all these texts from 20, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. I think the lessons in them are so important. And 
we should just educate ourselves about the legacy of the IMF and World Bank. And that's like a first step, like knowledge is power and we should be knowledgeable about what happened. And I think that's that's an important first step because we seem to have lost the co public collective knowledge about what the IMF and World Bank were. Like we may have had that maybe 30 years ago, but anyone younger than like 40 years old probably knows very little about the World Bank or IMF. Even the people who work there don't know. And there's a little bit of a banality of evil thing here going on, but like most people who work at these institutions are not bad people. Like they don't really know what's kind of meta going on. They, they, they see their job as extending um, capital and, and credit to countries that couldn't otherwise get it. And they, they really think that they're doing a good job, right? So it's only when you really zoom out and you see the, like the multi-decade impact of, of these things where you start to see the massive human and environmental damage that they, they've done. And, you know, we talk about a future, well, you know, and I talked to Jeff Booth and Saifedean and a few others quite a bit about this to try and sculpt my thinking here. But I mean, if we have a Bitcoin standard, the IMF World Bank can't like do what they do. Like they, like they, they would not be able to do infinite bailouts. Like if, if Brazil wants $30 billion, like, you know, it's sort of like you and who's Bitcoins, you know, is, is sort of the, what Saifedean said. And it's, it's true. It's like, that's got to come from somewhere, right? Today, it doesn't have to come from anywhere. It can be printed. But in a world where no country can print the reserve currency, I think that the World Bank and IMF, if they are to continue to exist, have to be much more careful organizations and have to be much more kind of more like traditional banks where they assess risk and then make decisions based on that as opposed to ignoring risk, right? And knowing that no matter what, these can be bailed out and and creating that 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 global moral hazard for the whole financial system where you have banks making loans now and doing business in countries that they would never do normally because because they know they'll get bailed out and and the, all the moral hazard that that creates. So I think as we transition to a Bitcoin standard over the next few decades, like we'll probably have an unwind. Well, we'll certainly have an unwinding of these institutions. They'll have to either refocus or just be abolished. Um, and that's not going to be pretty. I mean, I don't think that any of this is going to be pretty. Uh, I mean, I hope it's a winding down and not a collapse. Uh, I mean, any any sort of the parable of of structural adjustment is that like again when you're when you're when you're being subsidized, um, even if that's a bad decision economically, we'd probably all agree. But when you when your subsidy goes to zero, uh, that's bad. Like that's unequivocally bad for the majority of people who live in that particular country is being subsidized. So it's sort of the same thing. So you, so all these countries are essentially being like subsidized by the World Bank and IMF at their expense long-term. If those subsidies go to zero overnight, like bad things are going to happen, right? So my hope is that there's an unwinding that happens and that bank and that countries basically start to like default. And in many cases, like if you have defaults, like who actually gets hurt, you know? I mean, it's, it's in many cases, it's going to be the creditor who made the bad decision in the first place, right? And that would be like free market capitalism at work, right? Like that's why bankruptcies are an important part of capitalism, right? Oh, oh you made a bad decision. Okay, you're going to lose money there, okay? Um, today, it's like engineered so that like the people making the loans are not facing any risk. I mean, it's not a free market. Like they're getting bailed out by the IMF, right? In the same way that the US government has like a put on whether it be stocks or credit or whatever. Like you have like the nationalization of these things. Well, this is like the super supranationalization of, of sovereign debt and foreign investment. Um, so if that goes away, I think, I think there's an unwinding, right, of total amount of credit in the system uh, in real terms over time. I think these institutions either become a lot more careful or, or disappear. 
And I think there is still a place in a Bitcoin standard for powerful countries to have a lender of last resort type thing, um, like 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 the IMF World Bank were originally drawn up to be um, before they kind of mutated into this grotesque colonial apparatus. Like, like there is a place for I think a World Bank type thing that would be funded by deposits from wealthy countries to fund important, sustainable projects in poor countries that that private markets maybe can't fund. I think that is absolutely an important thing. But it can't be funded by like fiat bailout money. Like it's got to be funded by like actual capital. So um, I think those institutions will be much wiser, much more conservative, much more careful, and much more like prudent in terms of like the amount of capital they're giving. It'll be like a lot more careful, basically. Like these projects yeah. that were funded by the bank and the fund simply because they had a quota that they, they like these bureaucrats were like, they had to lend out a hundred billion every year to this part of Africa. That was like in their job. Like that, that's, that's literally their job is find projects like to fund. targets. Yeah. And like they, if they, if there was no targets, they had to make them up. So you had all this massive waste, right. And it would just go into the line, line the pockets of government officials and stuff like that and fund projects in the middle of nowhere that didn't do anything. So if you no longer have these like fiat, like targets of like, you have to lend out X. If it's more like, well, like how can we really improve the quality of life for people in this country? Um, I think things are going to be very different. So uh, yeah. I, I'm hopeful about the far future or about at least the medium to yeah. far future, but I don't think there's any way that the next decade isn't really rough as we, as some of these countries essentially, essentially go to rehab and they, they get off the fiat system. It's going to be really tough. Um, I don't. Right. I think we should have no illusions about that. It's going to be really, really difficult. Uh, there's going to be a lot of suffering um, because that's what going to rehab is. Is really painful. So um, yeah. it will be long term healthy for the nation, for these nations and these groups of people um, as they transition more to a standard where they are independent and sovereign. Um, I think it'll be much healthier for them. But the the the, the system is going to be painful to wean off of. Uh, for sure. I mean, the other interesting part is that is the is the mining piece, and I, some people are less bullish about this, but I just find it fascinating that like in the future, any country, no matter how small, like can create some reserve currency by transforming its latent, uh, uh, you know, energy resources in directly into that through Bitcoin mining without permission. So, like today, you can't just like. Malawi can't, again, can't just like create dollars. Like it has to go out and get them, et cetera. It has to do things that the world wants. Well, what if Malawi instead can just turn its flowing rivers and sunlight or whatever into Bitcoin? Now, it may not be a lot of Bitcoin, but hey, that's going to be the premium collateral of all financial markets in the world. Like Bitcoin will be very valuable. So I think it's really cool that maybe in the future you can have even these poorer countries be able to permiss permissionlessly generate uh, the reserve currency. Um, I think that'll that'll really level the playing field a little bit. Uh, that's something I think about a lot too. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Although I think at one level we could say, look, mining is a business like True. any other, and uh, you know we've seen in the recent cycle a lot of miners totally. get wrecked. You know, so if those governments don't have you know competent and conservative minded, yeah, it won't work. Let's say uh, conservative in the in the business sense of not getting wrecked in a bull cycle kind of thing or extending. You know, um, but I think I think your point about some of these countries going into default, I think that's sadly yeah. the way some of these things will go. And then maybe the IMF and World Bank creditors will have to actually take a loss. They'll have to take a loss on that loan that they lent out in some cases. And we may see. And that'll shrink the amount of credit in the world. Right. Yeah. And that'll start to unwind this bubble. And, you know, there's going to be big effects from that. But 
I just think we're headed towards a system at the both the micro and the macro level that is just much more cooperative. Like right. uh, Jeff called it, Jeff Booth called it forced cooperation. Like basically, when you even think about the wage disparities and the way that the fiat system and the colonial system created these like um, wage disparities, like like if you're living in this world, this new world where everybody's on the same monetary standard and there's no like barriers between commerce in the same way, and we're all just like on the same currency system, like the arbitrage on wages is going to be much tighter. Like it's not going to be, it's not going to go away. Like there's still going to be benefits to having your com- your company based in America versus Nigeria, all kinds of benefits, security, et cetera, et cetera, whatever language, uh, who knows, like all kinds. But if you have talented software developers there, like that wage thing's going to like close a little bit, right? So I think one of the, one of the, again, one of the ways that the world is still so divided and still so unequal in many ways is because of the fiat system where you have all these fiats and you have hundred plus fiats and 40 plus central banks on one continent alone. And none of them are interoperable. And everybody's like kept in a system where if they want to do commerce or move from one system A to system B, they have to pay rent to some foreign power. Like that is currently the system. And the answer as as I'm so glad people at the Africa Bitcoin Conference were saying, is not to replace that system with an indigenous system. I think that that's that's been the problem in post-colonial Africa, right? That a mentor of mine, George Aite, would write about a lot. Like basically, the the colonial systems were just like replaced by dictator systems, where the the colonialist was just living down the road instead of in Britain, and the, the, they were like r- rinsing and repeating the same thing. So the answer is not to like nationalize Western unions fiat rails in Zimbabwe or whatever and replace them with Zimbabwean fiat rails. No, that's actually probably going to be even worse. The answer is to switch to Bitcoin, right? So I think it's really cool. And I think it does have a little bit of that forced cooperation thing that 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 Jeff's talking about. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more optimistic about the future for sure, but I don't think people should be under any illusions about how tough it's going to be for, for the next few years, but at least individuals will have an escape, right? I think that's the key. We don't really know how this is all going to shake out at the macro global level, like what the Bitcoin transformation ends up doing to the world. Like, again, I'm optimistic. Um, but what we do know is that as opposed to the 1980s, people in countries like Ghana and Sri Lanka actually have on a micro level, they can opt out. And that that's very, very valuable. Yeah, especially in this, uh, like if the, you know, I think, we are seeing a lot more people doing remote work as an obvious example, right? And if you yeah. can do an online skill or job or business, earn Bitcoin for that, it's 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 making a difference, right? And I think whether you're in Africa or Asia or South America, like there are there are opportunities there. And I think that is going to start rebalancing things. And we'll see. It may be some combination of things, as, as we were talking about, some defaults in the poorer country. Mm-hmm. It may be over like a longer term, maybe if it's devaluation of fiat and bi- in favor of Bitcoin, well, that's going to correct in the system. And I guess one other area, I think you touched on this in the article as well, is this idea that maybe people should start pushing against this whole notion of foreign aid, or at least government foreign aid, right? And I think that was something you were mentioning um, as well, I noticed, because the idea is there are some people who are aware about this kind of thing and saying, actually, some of this foreign aid is part of the problem because it's going to the dictator, it's going to the we need to get off the teat. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to separate aid from assistance. I mean, aid is a small fraction of all assistance, right? Yeah. Again, remember, most assistance are loans, and these are these are not really assistance. I mean, they're making money off. They're, they're framed as, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but 
I didn't want to deride all. I mean, I think that like private aid can be very important. Like if a country has an earthquake or something, like of course, of I course, think it's yeah. quite charitable and admirable to donate. Uh, like let's say in the wake of the the two thousand was it two thousand four tsunami in Asia in in, in the Indian Ocean, right? Uh, the um was that it was two thousand four, right? The horrible uh, killed like a hundred thousand people, right? Like in the in in circumstances like that, uh, private aid is is noble. Um, and of course it's 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 ineffective. Uh. In, in in many ways, it's it's inefficient because you have all these fiat rails and third parties in the middle, like bureaucrat bureaucracies like the Red Cross, etc. But the general concept of like making a no strings attached gift to uh, people who have just been like devastated by an earthquake or uh, by a famine, of like course. I think, is yeah. really noble and important. The problem is when the aid, when aid turns into an industry, right? And that's almost like a separate issue. Um, but yeah, it creates, it creates dependence and, and it, it creates dependence in the same way that this quote unquote assistance that I've been analyzing creates dependence, uh, where like local industry gets wiped out. Like you have aid in the form of like clothing, used clothing being dropped into these countries and it wipes out the local textile manufacturers and it wipes out, um, the ability of local business to produce. Right. So a lot of the aid is, is even these countries are victims of both aid and assistance, ironically. Um, you know, in, in the assistance has been uh, indebting them and and structuring their economies in ways to help us instead of help them, as as I've detailed in my article. But separately, aid in some cases, you know, again, a lot of it, as you say, go, goes to the government officials, you know, uh, and doesn't actually reach reach all the way down to the people who need it. Um, but it can also create dependency. And people like Dembi Samoyo have written a lot about this. But um, you know, aid aid can be quite dangerous. And you know, but but it's a separate. I think it's important to, yeah. to be to distinguish that from assistance. Yeah. Uh, again, aid is only a small percentage. But the one thing I would say is that that we didn't mention that is important is w- whether it's aid or assistance. What what is always interesting is that Western countries consider this. Um, they call it official development assistance, ODA, like any sort of aid or assistance. And and, and that that's they, they're all like comparing. Oh, who gave the most ODA this year? But what's crazy is in the ODA, which would be like maybe let's say like whatever mil- whatever amount of billions of dollars France gives in ODA every year. The crazy part is like oftentimes, as I mentioned in my article, like and this goes for the World Bank or IMF too, any sort of large assistance uh, project like project, the money is quote unquote lent out, but immediately comes back to the West. This is called like the double loan phenomenon, right? So, for example. I, I talked about this issue uh, in an example in Ghana. Like there was a huge dam built in the 60s in Ghana on Lake Volta. It created this huge lake you can see from outer space, Lake Volta on the Volta River, the Aksombo Dam. So money was lent by the World Bank and other, like in a World Bank like uh, like round, and it was lent out to uh, the Ghanaian government who then immediately hired an Italian company to build the dam. So the money, right. the, yeah. the money was entirely spent in the West, but the Ghanaian taxpayers had to pay the whole thing back plus interest. And then the project itself was going towards an American aluminum company getting really cheap electricity. And nobody in Ghana was actually sort of benefiting from this for, for like many years. So, so this is, I thought there was a great kind of metaphor for what development really is. In many cases, it's, it continues to be foreign exploitation. But that double loan phenomenon is very sinister and, and happens all the time. Like the money gets written off or designated as assistance, but in reality, you know, sixty to eighty percent of it comes right back into the pocket of the donor country or the or the lending country. So uh, I think that's that's been 
Yeah, that's so brutal. An understudied phenomenon. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, I mean, as we were saying, I think the way out is, yeah, some countries will have to default. Uh, other countries, or at least individuals, will have their way of, you know, going to Bitcoin. And so, yeah, I guess that's really the best we can hope for is that people are waking up to Bitcoin as the alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, brick by brick. Yeah, that's right. Also, uh, one other thing, I know you recently had a bunch of uh, grants going out from HRF. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about uh, some of the HRF grants uh, that have gone out recently? Sure. So we're happy to be able to give out about 2 billion Satoshis, um, which I suspect in 10 years will be probably a, a very large amount. <laughs> but we're fortunate to have supporters who, who are interested in, in seeing us do this. Um, so we have a program where we give away 10 to 12 grants every quarter. Uh, our next one will be in February, our Q1 grants. This was uh, about 10 projects around the world focused on core development, scaling, Bitcoin communities, education, and privacy. So some of the recipients included uh, individual core developers, individual Lightning developers, educational groups in places like Sub-Saharan Africa um, or India, actually, and also like projects working on privacy, like the Tor project, um, as well as uh, a conference that was recently held in Mexico that was focused on on-chain privacy. So travel grants for students and activists, um, projects to help men and women, uh, girls and boys of different ages and, and backgrounds to learn about Bitcoin. So um, yeah, it's kind of like a, a full stack approach, I think. Uh, but we're excited to do it. I think it's somewhat unique in, in the space. And uh, we'll, we're excited to, to, to keep doing it because right now, you know, in many ways, we want to acknowledge that I think in the, in the, in the breakdown of how much we give, that core development will always be important to an extent. Um, but in many ways, I think you can you you can you can argue that Bitcoin is good enough as is. Like it, like it works today. Like it, it can do a lot more. Like it's it's but like it could just ossify today and not change at all, and still really change the world over the next forty years, right? So, like we keep some for core development, but most of it is 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 really to expand the number of users of Bitcoin. So yeah. communities, communities and education, education yeah. and UX improvements. Um, so I think that's where we are particularly suited to helping. And and a lot of these are going to, you know, this is all going to be in line with our mission. So these developers are mostly or entirely based uh, in authoritarian countries or emerging market countries. Um, and that's where these initiatives are. Like, you know, Cameroon is a great example. Um, or countries that have, that are facing, you know, crises of human rights, like India even today uh, has a lot of issues. So we're very, very proud to support the, the Indian Bitcoin community. I think they're going to be um, very important for Bitcoin in the next decade. Yeah, very important uh, country in terms of the size, right? Just, you know, the number of people and... Biggest uh, country in the world. Yeah. They don't trust the government. They love cash and they love Bitcoin. Uh, they love gold. So I think they're going to be They'll huge be Bitcoiners. A, in an the easy future. sell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they have to get past all the uh, altcoins, uh, which is a huge issue. Yeah. But that's why the, the, the Bitcoin education is so critical. Yeah. All right. Well, fantastic. I think I think that's um I think that's a good spot to finish up there. But uh, yeah, I think it's great. Um, the 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 grants and the programs there in terms of building the community and the education. So uh, yeah, any any closing thoughts or anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Well, it's all connected. I mean, again, as I said at the beginning, the Africa Bitcoin Conference is one of the things we've supported, and it's kind of this third way movement of people in the global south realizing that they can build on Bitcoin as a reaction against both you know authoritarians and corrupt local leaders as well as like the IMF and World Bank right so 
Bitcoin is is both anti-authoritarian and anti-imperial. And I think that in many ways, hopefully our grants can reflect that and, and we'll continue to try and support as many uh, Bitcoin projects in the global south uh, as we can. And and again, thanks thanks so much for having me on today to talk about these issues. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex. Chat soon. I hope you enjoyed the show. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 446. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.